Welcome back, friends, to another episode of Liminal Frames. I'm your host, Nathan, and I'm joined by my friend, co-host, colleague, Darren Exo Academian. Darren, it has, uh, I keep saying this, and I think I'm going to get exhausted. I'm, I'm almost exhausted thinking about it. It's so much going on right now. Uh, this hearing that took place just a few days ago, we're all still, I think, grappling with what took place there and and observing the reaction to it. Uh, I know you've been intimately plugged into this and you've been talking about aspects of this hearing for quite some time and what it might mean. We've talked about what it might mean. But now that it's actually happened, I mean, how are you feeling? It's a good question because as we talked about before we went on the air, I was reminding you or reflecting on how I mentioned to you that some of this was going to happen months ago, but even though I knew it was going to happen, I didn't know exactly how it would play out, but I knew the the general strokes. But when you're living through it, it is a different dynamic altogether because even as much as all of us that are intimately familiar with this topic have known it's true, have known it's part of our reality, because we've had to exist as if it's a parallel reality that we get to talk about when we're talking with each other and when we're on UFO Twitter, which no longer exists, by the way, um, it's very different when suddenly those worlds merge to the point where your family and friends are asking, your colleagues are asking, you're seeing politicians that you're used to living in that other world that's just politics as usual suddenly are engaging in this topic. It feels a bit, dare I say, discombobulating because you you do almost feel like the ground's moving beneath your feet and you begin with this notion that one day our civilization will reckon with this. Suddenly when you find yourself in the midst of it happening, seeing it play out in real time where every week remarkably new and astounding revelations emerge, it's hard to catch your breath in some ways. Even for someone like myself who's really familiar with what's going on, it's still a bit of a a mind leap, a lurch to really grok that this is happening in real time as we speak. And it's only going to pick up momentum from here. As much as we're surprised by how quickly things are moving, every time you get a second to sort of reflect on what just happened, you find mention of new hearings and, and select committees, and you have legislation being passed that, by the way, the White House did not have any problem with. So this is going to become law, right? This is remarkable. And as you said at the outset there, every time we begin these episodes, we're like, wow, a lot's been happening. And each time it feels like it outdoes the previous time. How have you felt about the whole thing? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I tweeted a couple of things. I've been tweeting more often, actually Xing. I don't know what we're calling it now. Uh, posting, I think is what we're calling it. Uh, I've been posting more often recently. I think in part because I do feel more energized to express some of my thoughts on social media. Uh, I got a lot of attention for a screen grab that I took of Congressman Burleson from Missouri. Uh, he was the one asking questions from the standpoint of, uh, he's from the show me state, I need to see some proof. And my post there was ontological shock happening in real time. I got a lot of reaction to that uh, from folks that I think basically saw what I saw, which is what a, which was a person who was really dealing, trying to deal with what he was hearing uh, in that room and make sense of it all. And uh, in a way, hand wave some of it away. <laughs> I just 
maybe this isn't really a thing that's happening here. And um, I think that's what a lot of folks are feeling, uh, you know, not only feeling during that moment, but feeling in the in the wake of that moment. I, I do think that the hearing was historic. Uh, I also, you know, sort of posted this, that it was historic and paradigm shifting, compelling, uh, concerning and hopeful. I mean, I called it a watershed moment. And I, and I stand by that. I think it is a watershed moment in the history of this topic. And a lot of folks will say, oh, we've been down this road before. And this looks like you know, Project Blue Book and things that have happened in the past. And, and I just have to say that it doesn't, it's not even close to that because the degree of partnership that we're seeing with our legislative and executive, uh, you know, bodies, they're, they're, they're coordinated and, uh, and they're working, not only working together, but uh, working across the aisle. Um, you know, it struck me that with the high degree of partisanship that we have in our, in our current time, Either party would love nothing more than to hang an, a fantastical, silly UAP story around the neck of their counterpart and, and drag them every single day in the media for their interest in UAP if they didn't think it was serious, right? If you think about how, how much they want to score political points and the fact that they're not scoring political points with this topic and are actively in partnership with folks that are across the aisle who normally they would be really just having it out with, right? I mean, you're seeing folks like Tim Burchett and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Matt Gates, basically like having little powwows after the hearing. And I mean, show me another example of where that's happening. I just, I don't see it. So that tells me that there's extreme, extreme level of interest in this topic, that, that they are taking it seriously, that the stigma is very much falling away. And, and I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that it's, it's more okay to talk about this in, in social circles, uh, more okay to broach this topic. My mom sent me a post about it, which I never thought I would see. I mean, this is stuff that is happening. It's just it's percolating out into the collective conscious, and, and that's what we want to see. It may not be all the earth-shattering revelations that we'd love to hear right away, but the fact that people are talking about it and engaging on it is very positive. Very true. And for me also, I've been surprised by the degree of bipartisan support for this. I was hoping we would get to that, and I thought it might take several months more. The degree to which it just seemed to manifest overnight after having been one way for so, so long, which just reminds me of that saying, history repeats itself until it doesn't. And again, some people who are tired of being fooled, tired of being believers who are let down, frustrated idealists, they turn into these people who are cynics, skeptics, and say, ah, this is, like you say, Project Blue Book all over again. This is just a false flag. And yet, when I think you look at it, I think that's a failure in critical thinking. I think that's a failure in critical analysis of the actual elements in play here. Like you said, seeing these people, and I said this to you before we went on the air tonight, seeing AOC with Matt Gates both asking penetrating questions, really good questions, and you get the sense that they're both fired up around the same issue, which like you say, and what other issue has that happened like that? And it's been refreshing from a human point of view just to see that, okay, we do have this capacity within us to move past this ridiculous politicization of everything and actually be inspired by something called curiosity. 
what I sensed in a lot of the people in the hearing was that they're kind of a lot of closet sci-fi nerds that grew up watching Star Wars and Star Trek and whatnot and are taken with the moment. You had that sense, you know, almost that not nervous laughter in terms of scoff, but more like, do we really get to be here in this moment when we are talking about what we might have called first contact in, in previous eras? And it seems like we are. And I think, again, even you and I, when we were reflecting before we started the episode, do you do have that sense of the ground shifting beneath your feet every time you wake up? And it makes you wonder where it's all going. We, of course, will talk later on about where it might be going, why this is all happening at the pace it's happening. But yeah, it's almost like I'm lost for words, which almost never happens just because it's so remarkable and it's so outpacing anything I think what we were expecting. So even though I knew a lot of revelations were going to happen, to see every branch of government coming together now and moving on this, and you suddenly realize, wow, this Disclosure Act of 2023 that basically exposes not just the possibility of a secrecy campaign around UAP including things like non-human intelligence and recovery of biologics. This is the new term of the week. But not only are they talking about the possibility, but they're saying this indeed is part of our history and it's time to move quickly to make the default that unless you can make a really good argument why this needs to be kept secret for the sake of national security, the default should be declassified now as quickly as possible. And I think we can get into later, how quickly will we get those initial declassifications happening so that some of the smoking gun evidence, for instance, that we talked about before we went on the air, that Christopher Mellon, for instance, has spoken about, how quickly will we get that? So that the people that are out there right now saying, sure, this sounds encouraging, sounds promising, but it's still stories. Some of those people will not move, partly because of interesting psychological reasons, right, which we can get into around cognitive dissonance, but some of them will not move until they see that first photo. Of course, we also live in the era of CGI, and AI. And so no matter how good the photo is, a certain part of the population is going to say CGI, you know, they're going to say, you know, this is part of a false flag. So I don't know that it's going to be quite the game changer that people think it's going to be even then, but nevertheless, what a time to be alive. Yeah. I, I was very impressed with how serious they, uh, the, the people in Congress took this entire moment that, and, and there was some critique before the hearing within our community about the witnesses themselves, like having Fravor and Graves, uh, who we've heard so much, heard so, from so much before, uh, and Grush just being the only witnesses. People wanted something meatier. They wanted someone who worked directly on one of these programs. And I get it. I mean, that would be amazing. But after going through the experience, I think it was it was the perfect choice to have those three. Uh, you have two folks who to me, are very, very credible. Uh, even though we've heard their stories before, they're very well-spoken, very confident uh, in their retelling of their experiences, uh, and to me, bring a great deal of uh, gravity to to what they're saying uh, with Ryan Graves and, and David Fravor. And then Grush himself. I mean, even though he's saying some things that are quite eye-opening, and, and we've heard them before. He didn't really say anything that was particularly new for those of us who have already seen his News Nation interview or, or read the piece uh, from the debrief. But watching the reactions from those Congress people to what he was saying and the, and the questions they were asking clearly communicated that they weren't, they didn't 
think this was silly. They, they took this very seriously. Some of them went out of their way to attend this hearing, even though they, they didn't have to be there, uh, including Congress people who didn't get to ask any questions at all. We had one representative from North Carolina who just attended the session, didn't even ask any questions. But then he briefed his constituents later on about what he saw and how, how encouraged he was by the bipartisanship that took place. So you know, these are very, very strong signs, in my opinion, of, of positive forward momentum. Um, I think you know, I share the frustration, as I'm sure you do too, that uh, we didn't get some of the juicier tidbits that we might have wanted because of classification reasons. Um, and it also was frustrating to hear after the fact that it sounds like they didn't, weren't able to get him in a skiff uh, to get some of the information that they've asked for. But interestingly enough, that seems to almost like enrage them further. They're, they're now even more galvanized around trying to get him in that secure facility so they can get that information uh, and can further the investigation. So as opposed to maybe being like, maybe like a hopeful, like there's nothing to see here, hand-waving gesture from the DOD because you can't talk to this guy in a skiff. It's actually made them more focused on getting him into a skiff and trying to get past those roadblocks that have been placed in, in front of them. So, uh, yeah, I, I couldn't be uh, more excited about it, very encouraged. Uh, this was definitely not a letdown, in my opinion. It exceeded my expectations. And uh, I think we did a good job of keeping our expectations, you know, fairly low. Uh, so all around good, good stuff. Totally. And I would add a couple things that have come out since the hearing that people might not be familiar with. Speaking of the witnesses that you just mentioned, not sure if you'd heard this part yet, but actually it turns out there were six witnesses originally, actually, and three of them dropped out at the last minute. One, I think, was maybe associated with NASA in a quasi-associative kind of way. One was somehow associated with the DOD and got a last-minute phone call from the DOD and then decided to back out the last minute. Some people in social media circles, of course, have said that sounds a lot like witness intimidation. That's anti-American, blah, blah, blah. This is what's in the mix right now. A couple of things I would say too, another thing that's come out since the hearing is that for people who aren't aware, Dave Grush's legal representation was sitting right behind him. So what's different than the Ross Coulthard interview is there, you can edit the interview afterwards. And I know they did edit the interview afterwards and even navigated through and debated what part should we include, which part should we not include in the final edit. But of course, when you're testifying before Congress, it's one and done. You don't get to edit after the fact. So he literally had his attorney behind him. And this is something George Knapp brought up because they were sitting right next to him, right next to the attorney. And so as a question would be fielded by one of the Congress people, this attorney would say, nope, or they could say, careful, like little words to like su signal Dave Grush, who's walking a very fine line, a tightrope, walking right up the line and trying not to cross it, right? Because you know the DOD would love to find him in violation of his NDA and revealing classified information. So he walked right up to that line and was getting legal counsel in real time with every single question. And of course, some people are frustrated that he had to say so many times, I'm afraid I can't say that because of you know national security reasons. I'll be happy to talk to you in a skiff. We heard that over and over again. But like you say, just the fact that the questions were being asked of that nature. And as the hearing went on, as far as government hearings go, it was pretty entertaining. And actually, it seemed like the Congress people got more and more engaged and were asking more and more questions. We're getting more and more forward. AOC was like, who do I need to talk to? If you were me, if you were my position, how do I dig? Like, how do I uncover this? How do I pull the thread that unravels this sweater? 
So yeah, it was remarkable. And I think even hearing from people like, and I said this to you before I went on the air, hearing from people like Bryce Sable and George Knapp who've been doing this for decades, I think you see them in real time just wondering what on earth is happening because we've had this one pace throughout history where the Air Force, the DOD, the secret keepers have been very good about shutting this down over and over again. Every time there's word of hearings, they would dissipate or nothing would come of it. We've had Project Blue Book, these basically sanctioned disinformation campaigns. And suddenly they're sitting in this hearing front row, seeing history change almost overnight. Really remarkable. Yeah, it, it, it is it was weird in a way seeing George Knapp and Jeremy Corbell uh, sitting behind these witnesses. Uh, they've been such central figures in the in the public narrative over the last few years. And I know that they're also lightning rod figures, right? There are folks who really don't like George Knapp and Jeremy Corbell, and folks you know who really do and think that they're doing excellent work. Um, so you know, fascinating to see them be so close to the action. Uh, and we even saw some some uh, pictures of them before the hearing, where they were kind of in a in a briefing room or a uh, a ready room, uh, kind of huddled together. And it's you know it's a little bit strange seeing them all together in that one place, getting ready for this momentous occasion. Uh, but you very much get the sense that this isn't going away. I guess these are some takeaways. It's not going away. Uh, the intensity is ramping up. That the interest is increasing. And a lot of the reactions, I know we're going to talk a little bit about some of the reactions. Some of the reactions are in some ways centered around things that don't really matter. A lot of the critiques that I've seen of Grush uh, have seemed very lazy, like uh, critiquing how he appears, uh, you know, taking those, like the least flattering pictures of him from the hearing, using those in articles. Uh, they're not attacking the merits of what he's saying or... Yeah, highlighting his extensive professional background. Um, it's one thing where you have pilots, right? Pilots, we have this kind of uh, heroic uh, picture of, of pilots in in our you know, kind of American um, you know story. These are the fighter pilots getting in their you know F-18s and and doing dogfights. I mean, you think of Top Gun. I mean, how popularized uh, that made that uh, you know sort of military profession. So these guys are coming in with that level of, uh, you know, kind of social capital. And, and there's not a lot of questioning that you're going to, you know, lob at their, at their backgrounds. In fact, in many ways, um, from a masculine perspective, traditionally masculine anyway, you know, men would look at the fighter pilot and be like, that's, that's somebody I would want to aspire to be. I'm not going to mess with that guy. You know, if he's at a bar, I'm going to buy him a drink, right? These are people that have that, uh, you know, sort of ready authority. Uh, whereas Grush being an intelligence officer, um, you know, it's interesting that he has that label and has people have kind of glossed over his deep background there. And we, we know that the uh, intelligence officer persona is, has been a lot more complicated in the last few years uh, because both parties have uh, used their rhetoric to kind of weaponize various aspects of our government. And if you work in intelligence, you, you are coming in already with a certain level of uh, public bias as, oh, you're a spook, you know, so I can't really trust anything that you say. Uh, whatever you're telling me can't be true. So There's an interesting package deal there, right, where you have these really credible uh, public persona types and you have this person that is coming out of the shadows 
and uh, and just critiqued, in my opinion, uh, very superficially, not on the real merits of what he has to say. Absolutely. And I think people in our circles have been putting forward social media posts saying, you know, American hero, putting him on the front cover of time saying, you know, person of the year, that kind of thing. And even people, again, like George Knapp and whatnot, Ross Coulthard have said that he's remarkably brave. They're saying that they don't know. I know that Ross said this. He doesn't know that he would take the risks that David's taken. And yet, like you say, all people try to lob are these lowball tactics to try to discredit him. Again, what I want to point out to people is that they're only using tactics like bad photos and maybe the worst of his mannerisms when really that's the case because nothing else can be found to discredit him. Like you already pointed to, his professional background is above reproach. He very obviously was elevated and uh, recognized as a key asset in the circles he's been in. He's worked in different agencies. He was always highly regarded. He really is a patriot in the sense of he seems to act based on what he thinks is in the best interest of the American fabric. And because of that, he really felt that he had to come forward. There will be people right until the end who are going to try to say this is a false flag, that he's part of a PSYOP. I just don't see it that way whatsoever. And one day, I, you know, I sometimes on the one hand, it's a bit much sometimes when people try to raise too much hoopla about people and contend to turn people into unrealistic hero figures. But in his case, I really think it's remarkable how much of a risk he's taken. It's no doubt the case that his life was in danger by doing this. And as we talked about in an earlier episode, part of the reason why they, in the end, kind of rushed that article uh, that ended up being in the debrief was because there was a real concern that he was in danger. The less that his story was known publicly, the more danger he was in. Just before we went on the air tonight, and I want to get into this later, just part of the the dark history, the dark murky history of this entire endeavor, I was reading to you people who've been killed or died in really mysterious circumstances, one after another after another, even around some of the technology that supposedly has come out of some of these discoveries with the retrieved craft and whatnot. So it's not just kids with a cookie jar saying, I don't want to give it to you. It's people actually murdering people, trying to erase history by any means possible in order to keep this secret. So at some point, when you think about the the psychic trauma on a nation, I've been thinking a lot about that, that it's not just what's been done, but it's that we have to reckon as a people with what our nation has been responsible for. And we will have to reckon with the fact that 20th century history, and I say this often on this podcast and on Point of Convergence, is considerably different than we were taught. And we are the generation that will have to metabolize this false history from the true history. One day, I think I heard Bryce Abel talk about this, they will rewrite the history books and future generations will get the real history. But we're the ones that almost feel like we're living through a simulation where we suddenly have to catch up with the fact that, wait a second, what we thought happened in the 20th century is not really what happened. You and I, before we went on the air, talked about how nuclear weaponry, atomic energy, all of these things are wrapped up with the UFO phenomenon. Like I said, a point of convergence. It's so fascinating to me that part of our zeitgeist is 
desert landscapes, mushroom clouds, and flying saucers. What is that all about? It's not just coincidental. It's just fascinating, and there's going to be a lot we're going to have to metabolize. We keep using that word. That's our new favorite word, but it seems to be the case that it's one thing for these revelations to come forward. Then you have to see it begin to seep into the soil of our nation, and then what grows out of that? What do we become as a people because of these revelations? Will it be enough to fundamentally set us on a different course? These are some of the questions that have been occurring to me. Absolutely. And and I've argued before that we collectively have this sense in which we know something's wrong. And I think that has emerged with the growth of the internet and the free flow of information. Uh, and that obviously can cut both ways. Uh, the more that information can flow rapidly around the world, uh, the greater risk of, of misinformation, disinformation spreading as well. But but I would argue that with the preponderance and, and uh, perpetuation of all this data that we now have, uh, this connectivity that we now have, we collectively have a sense that that, that history is wrong and that the governments and the states of the world do have secrets. Uh, and keep in mind, too, that the economic disparity that has grown over the last few years only adds further to that suspicion, right? You've got this incredible wealth gap uh, between the, the, the top and the bottom. And, and so you've got a lot of discontent, right? And it manifests itself in different ways. But to me, I saw that discontent on display, and I think we'll continue to see it on display as this moves forward in the halls of Congress, because those representatives, many of them, uh, the younger representatives, are, are dealing with this and are, are wanting answers and, and, and feel within their bones in a way that, that they have been lied to. And they want to be part of the answer. They want to, they want to change things so that politics isn't politics as usual, so that real change can take place. Because we have stagnated for so long. And you know, I think the other part of this is, is, our, is wrestling with the history that we have with our military and our military-industrial complex. Right? We, we certainly uh, all benefit from the safety and security that our enormous military provides us. At least that's the way we justify all of that. At the same time, uh, I, don't, I can't think of anyone who would think it's okay for the Department of Defense to, uh, to not pass an audit, to just misplace a trillion dollars. <laughs> I mean, these are things that, that just don't fly in any household in America. And so to be able to shine some light on this kind of dark underbelly of our country and, and really, I think, try to, you know, clean it out because we, we, need, a, we need a fresh start here. And this, this provides an opportunity for us to do that. Um, at least I think that it does. And, and I hope that it will, because to me, we're running out of options. We're running out of good ways to bring us all together. And this is one of those things that I feel like could really catalyze that and, and, and make our future a lot better than, than what we're looking at right now. Very true. And I have been thinking a lot about this, how we seem to be heading down a trajectory that we seem unable to steer away from. It's almost like you're driving into the headlights of the oncoming car and you're just dazed by it and you're not able to turn to the left or right. 
And one of the things I even want to touch on in the course I'm going to teach in the fall is about how we get to this place of feeling overwhelmed, where we, on the one hand, want things like world peace, we want societal change, but we feel that we have no capacity, no agency to make that happen. And on top of that, even if we did, we have been raised in such a way that the amount of information that we're trying to take in, like you said, in the modern world with the technology we have with the internet, how the entire history of information is available to us, most people have, rather than taking advantage of that, they've actually narrowed their bandwidth of information that they receive because they already feel so overwhelmed and the pace of modern life is so insane. So we really need to, I think, ask some really deep societal questions about the nature of our culture because like you just pointed to, not only do we race until the grave, but on top of that, many, many people feel like they never get ahead, that they feel like the system doesn't really work for for most people. And I'm hearing this more and more, especially from people even like younger than us who are kind of trying for the first time to make their way in this economy. So when you think about the part of the UFO phenomenon history that involves the suppression of energy that could not only alleviate our climate change issues, which yes, you and I talked about before we went on the air, are really hammering like thunderclaps lately. But on top of that, it could alleviate this need to race until you hit the grave because we could solve energy problems. We could make work ultimately superfluous. We could make it so it could be something you want to do when you want to do it. We are so caught up in this Americanized Protestant work ethic that many people now work two or three jobs and we think this is normal. We talk about how our parents and grandparents, maybe one of the parents worked and the other one stayed home and the kids are used to that kind of being their experience. And most people in their 20s could afford to buy a car, buy a Ford and buy a small house. That's not the case anymore. It's one thing to reckon with that if you feel like there's nothing you can do about it. But if on top of that, you find out that there's been this suppression of energy technology and economic opportunity that could have transformed our civilization decades ago, then the amount of rage that begins to foment is considerable and understandably so. And this is why I speak to the collective sort of psychic trauma we're going to have to work through because when we get to, as I know we want to later in this episode, what counts as disclosure, this is part of it. It's not just about UFOs and supposed aliens. It's about the way that our civilization has been structured, been run, and what's been suppressed that could have been in the greatest interest of everyone. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I can't wait to dig into that. Well, uh, before we do that, I, I know we wanted to touch on a little bit the uh, some of the, the mainstream media reactions, uh, as well as uh, reaction that we had from Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick. Maybe we can kick this off with an article that I think just came out today in the Washington Post by Tyler Cohen. And, and there's a quote from this article that, at least for me, uh, really stood out. And, and he says, uh, that is not to say that I believed everything I heard. I do not think that the U.S. government has the remains of alien spacecraft, for example, including some alien bodies, as claimed by retired Air Force Major David Grush. So in the, before this little blurb I just read you, he was talking about how pleased he was, see this bipartisanship in the hearing, and uh, how credible he found the pilot testimony. 
And then he just likes to throw in this little sentence here about how, but I don't believe this alien stuff. Uh, all this other stuff was really credible to me, but uh, that whole alien, you know, bodies part, I, I, that's, that's a bridge too far. Um, and you can just almost like you can see it happening in, in real time there that this guy is just kind of, it's just a part of reality he doesn't want to deal with. Like it, this took place, but I'd rather not think about it and, and treat it very seriously. And you have to imagine that some of that, and I think this, this speaks to what you just talked about, the, the wrestling here with, uh, with the trauma and the legacy of this, of this obfuscation and, and, uh, and cover up. Some of that is, you know, personally, you don't want to, you don't want to think about this. But societally, and so from a social signaling standpoint, you don't want others to know that you're thinking about this and taking it seriously. And that's really what we're dealing with. We're dealing with that, uh, you know, how brave am I to, to come and out and say in a Washington Post article that while I am not sure I believe this, I do think we should treat it with seriousness and try to get to the heart of those claims and find out if they're actually credible or not. So that, that's what I want to see. I'm, I'm looking for that to take place. And we are seeing that happen in some articles. We are seeing that uh, some folks are saying, you know, I, I, I'm not sure about this, but this was pretty serious and Congress should get these answers. And, and it seems as if they're going to. So I, I've seen a remarkable, a remarkable shift anyway in the public conversation and the ability to uh, approach this topic with a greater degree of seriousness um, as you said earlier, which I thought was a really good uh, point, that there's a almost like a childlike curiosity that comes out in everyone uh, around this topic. And it, in a way, it does put us in the position of the child, right, where we don't know anything and uh, we, we know that uh, nobody else knows anything, right? So there's almost like no stupid question because you, you aren't worried that someone else has better answers because no one has any answers. So you feel more comfortable just saying, well, what, what are we dealing with here? And, and I want to know more. And what can I learn? So I, I'm seeing that happen. I'm very encouraged by it, uh, even though there are still uh, some, I think there have been some hit pieces uh, and, and notably like some pieces that have been absent from uh, some of our mainstream uh, media outlets, uh, whether they be the big newspapers or the, you know, the, the network uh, uh, news shows. I mean, News Nation is still doing by far the best coverage of this issue uh, out of anybody else that I've seen. Um, and I'd like to see more folks dig into it and, and get, and get you know, us further down the road. Indeed. And it's funny because you and I both highlighted the same quote from that article. I had the exact same quote. I got a bit more here and I, I want to comment on it. So just to, again, repeat this part, because I think it's really, really worth repeating. In this Washington Post article, he says, quote, that is not to say that I believed everything I heard, I do not think that the U.S. government has the remains of alien spacecraft, for example, including some alien bodies, as claimed by retired Air Force Major David Grush. But the rest of the evidence was presented in a suitably serious and persuasive manner. It is clear, at least to me, that there is no conspiracy and the U.S. government is itself puzzled by the data about unidentified anomalous phenomena. Unquote. So, some really strange bait and switches here to me, because first of all, what I posted on social media in light of this quote right here. I said, on the one hand, this topic is finally being covered in mainstream media, and that should be celebrated. Still, the ease with which people like this flatly state that they don't believe David Grush's claims, despite his clear bona fides, just shows again how sloppy this profession tends to be. Journalism, I'm speaking of there. It's as if the author is nervous 
that will think he actually believes in little green men. And then I said, while this is frustrating, it may be a necessary middle step as we move towards widespread cognitive assimilation, unquote. So this is key. He's on the one hand able to cognitively, honestly recognize it's a serious hearing. Matters seem to be presented in a logical, rational way, but somehow he's not able to assimilate that part with the part about alien spacecraft and bodies. So he just flatly says, I don't believe that. He doesn't support why he doesn't believe that. It's almost, again, because it's the default position amongst the mainstream, especially the elite mainstream, he doesn't even have to justify it. He's basically saying, don't worry, guys, I don't believe crazy stuff. But this other stuff was pretty good. And on top of that, he goes on to say, there is no conspiracy and the U.S. government is itself puzzled by the data. Now, there's a big difference there. Yes, the government is puzzled about the data, but that doesn't mean there's not a conspiracy. Those, those two uh, are not mutually exclusive, right? So you can actually have puzzlement because the data itself is confusing and you can have a conspiracy around not wanting to share that data while you try to figure it out. In fact, that's exactly what people like Bob Lazar, who people are talking about again now, because much of what's come up, people would argue, supports what he's been saying all along, that the conspiracy has involved both those things, hiding this from Congress and therefore from the American people, while also being very confused about what it means and how even to get this technology to work. Yeah, I... Uh... I keep wondering, like, what kind of attractions we'll see from some of these folks. Or, you know, I guess more importantly, what will be interesting to me is to see the same folks that are writing these kinds of pieces write additional pieces in the future and, and how their thinking may evolve. Because I think they, you know, to their credit, they're they're doing their thinking out loud and in public. And, and they're putting that on full display. And so in many ways, we can use that as a, a bit of a, a litmus test to see how well this is progressing in the collective psyche, uh, because you, I think they're they're putting their their own mental cognitive gymnastics on display, and like you said, some of them are just they're leading with the flat out bias, and the consensus reality doesn't require any evidentiary backup because that's what we already believe. Um, so just dismissing it out of hand is going to be the, the default mode, uh, but. We've had and continue to have uh, voices that are being elevated in this conversation that that point toward there being a there there. And here I'm talking specifically about uh, ex-director uh, of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, who was recently interviewed uh, by Maria Bartramono. And uh, he basically reiterated the same things that he had, had told her uh, at the end of the Trump administration, that there were there were pieces of intelligence that he really wanted to uh, declassify, that he thought that the Biden, he kind of took a, a jab at the Biden administration in this interview, which I was a bit annoyed by, um, but you know that, that he thought the Biden administration would release this intelligence and tell the American people uh, more about what was really going on, but that didn't happen. And, and essentially paraphrasing, there's more to the story than what they're telling you, right? Uh, and, and not only that, but like in another interview, I think this was on Fox and Friends, you know, they basically like directly asked this guy, are there aliens? And he just sort of like, uh, um, hmm, you know, he like, and they, and they caught it. They basically said, well, that's all the answer I need. Like, you're basically telling me that there are. And so that's really what we're dancing around here. And, uh, after I saw that clip and I, I just couldn't help, but want to post 
on social media because it, it's so absurd to me that we have uh, a refrain from this debunker crowd that just likes to paint this entire thing as an elaborate, uh, blown out of proportion fantasy story concocted by uh, Bob Bigelow in conjunction with Harry Reid and his and and their and their buddies. And that that's the and that's why we're here. Every single person who's bought into this, ninety nine percent of Congress who's now interested in this, all been duped by these incredible masterminds of subterfuge, which is uh, to me like it's that story is becoming the conspiracy from my perspective. Uh, it you cannot just dismiss and hand wave away all of these other credible witnesses from both political parties. Again, they would not, you know, the, if there was nothing here. They would totally lambast the other party for even wanting to talk about this subject. But because both of them do, to me, that indicates that there is something to it. And uh, I think we're going to continue to get some bigger, juicier tidbits from folks like uh, John Ratcliffe. Indeed. And by the way, Masterminds of Subterfuge is a great second album name. Thank you. The winner right there. And a down. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. A couple of things I want to say. Number one. One thing I pointed out on point of convergence is while some people were frustrated that there weren't new tidbits brought forward, although we did have the the giant red cube that came off the ocean that I know that you uh, have used some AI to uh, to illustrate over the last hail the cube, yeah, um, which was remarkable. But the key is that it's one thing to give testimony in front of a small news outlet. It's another thing entirely to testify under oath before Congress. And because it's so different, that's why we're seeing the uptake in mainstream media, not because they want to talk about it now, but because they have no choice. This is the business of the nation being conducted in Congress. And so that being the case, yes, as you rightly pointed out, we're seeing these journalists not wanting to have to write these articles, but having no choice and seeing them wrestle with in real time how do I do this? I didn't learn this in journalism school. How do I sort of parse out these things that go completely supposedly against what I've been taught about reality itself? It's really interesting to watch. Secondly, we also have all this momentum building, again, because these Congress people seem to get like fire under their seats with the more they heard from David Grush and the other two witnesses, to the point where almost immediately there was this proposing of a select committee. And select committee with subpoena power, which is essential because even Dave Grush said in his testimony, not only can I give you the names of cooperative witnesses, but also also hostile witnesses. In other words, secret keepers who know the details, they know the dirt, they do not want to talk about it. They've been on the side of trying to keep this secret. And Congress with subpoena power could demand that those people appear and testify. And depending on how they respond or what they say, or if they try to deceive, they could face jail time and whatnot. So one of the questions we're going to have in our national conversation, I see it happening already today based on a post that I made, was just around how are we going to process this? How do we encourage more people to come forward while at the same time knowing that some of them have done illegal activities? Some people talking about, should we have amnesty? What do we do to sort of finally clean this out of our system? That's going to be a conversation we're going to have to have. But nevertheless, things are moving very, very quickly. There's even been some talk about maybe a joint committee would happen, which would be even more remarkable. And 
there's this move to finally deal with this one matter that, again, is the last sort of domino to drop, I think, which is the people saying, this is still all story. Sounds great, sure. Sounds fascinating, but we don't have any clear evidence. Again, I've already pointed out how in the era of CGI and AI, I don't know that people seeing photographic or video evidence is really going to be what they think it is, but at least we're seeing this move, which again, maybe plays into trying to help the American people and the, and the world population begin to assimilate this into their psyche is by seeing evidence. And so we're seeing, again, this legislation moving very, very quickly to declassify by default to say, unless this has a clearly, like demonstrably clear way that this is going to impact national security, it should be declassified as the default. So that's a massive shift very, very quickly. And again, you think it might have something to do with knowing that people seeing that evidence might be another piece of this metabolizing that happens in preparation for something so that when something comes in the future, people are more prepared for it. At least that's certainly a way you could read it based on how things are playing out. Well, another notable reaction to the hearing came from Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick. Uh, and uh, those of you who heard our last episode know that I gave a very, uh, you know, sort of charitable view of Dr. Kirkpatrick and, and his role in this process. And uh, the LinkedIn letter post from Kirkpatrick in my opinion, didn't do this man any favors. Uh, and, and that's not just my own opinion. That seems to be the opinion of uh, several of the folks that are you know, partisan supporters of this movement, um, but even also of, I think, some elements of the Department of Defense. Uh, there's been questions about maybe violation of the Hatch Act, uh, witness intimidation, uh, whistleblowers. Uh, even those, I've heard rumors that there are staffers with an arrow who are frustrated that Kirkpatrick is uh, sort of speaking on their behalf when that may not be their own perspective. Um, I, I don't see how that helped the cause of Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick in any way, shape, or form. Um, nevertheless, you, you do see uh, the articles that are being written and, and uh, pieces that are on air uh, uh, cite this, cite this, some of the quotes from that letter and, and just re, you know issuing the same refrain that the Department of Defense uh, doesn't believe there's any any anything credible about these claims, and so we have that as a as a soundbite that just doesn't seem to want to go away. Now I have heard, uh, and I want to get your reaction on that, but I have heard as well that uh, Senator Gillibrand has ex has explicitly expressed interest in getting Grush and and Kirkpatrick sitting down in a room together to have a conversation. Uh, I would love to be a fly on that wall. But clearly, she's sort of like, you know, both of you can't be telling me the truth. So we need to get this cleared up and and get you both in the same place and get to the heart of what's going on here, because clearly something is amiss. So what was your take on uh, the Kirkpatrick letter and where do you see it going forward for him specifically? My initial take was that it was preposterous because he's seemingly digging his own grave. Because as I pointed out on POC, he could have said to the webmaster, I'm, I need to post something to our website. But, oh, oops, we don't have a website. So as people have pointed out, not just that, 
they set up a Twitter account and then proceeded to never a single time tweet. On top of that, Arrow has no phone number for pilots to call. Arrow has no website, as I said, for pilots to search. Arrow has no email address for pilots to email. And as I said, Arrow has not tweeted a single message since they started their Twitter account, which is now X, of course, 7-20-2022. Let that sink in. So just by his own testimony alone, we want to hear from pilots and credible witnesses. Really? Do you? How do you expect? I mean, today, are they supposed to like call up a wizard to, to get off some cheap? They're supposed to like, you know, click their heels and hope to go to Kansas. I mean, it's just like I said to you before we went on the air, even if it is a deliberate disinformation campaign, if, if it's intended to basically bury this in molasses and move so slowly that eventually people just get bored and you do what he originally talked about in that hearing with Gillibrand and whatnot, make it someone else's problem, right? Even if that's what you wanted to do, if you actually were part of a disinformation campaign, you would at least look like you're trying. It's it's almost beyond imagination here how much it's just glaringly obvious that they don't seem to be doing even the bare minimum. If this was the private sector and this was your job, you would not say he's succeeding at it. He's not fulfilling his role here. So... It's fascinating. And on top of that, David Grush doesn't just say that he knows him in passing. He says he's known him for about eight years, I think you said, in the interview with Ross. And so clearly he seems to think he has a pretty good take on this guy. We shall see what happens. But never in a million years would have I written a script that said, then when the guy who's in charge of the DOD appointed body looking into this would post a letter to LinkedIn. I just, that would never come up in the script that I would write. It's just so preposterous. And to me, it seems like you and I talked about this for one the year. We're trying to come up with some explanation for his activities, some way to justify that maybe somebody's missing something here. But it's not just these things we pointed to already. But Chris Mellon pointed out that he knows there's satellite footage that would be very, very relevant, pertinent for Congress to see. And he knows. Sean Kirkpatrick has not passed it on to Congress. Why not? Why have these many, many witnesses associated with David Grush not been talked to by Arrow? Why have these witnesses spoken about actually feeling like they don't have a welcome door to come in and talk to Arrow? What is the mismatch, like you said here? And finally, we're having Congress people like Jill Brand say, we need to get to the bottom of this, which is it's about time. Because I know you and I talked about Several episodes ago, I remember we, we sort of reflected on that initial hearing and how much it was pretty much his show and it was softballs lobbed his way and he could do with it what he wanted. We're in a very, very different place now. And you really wonder how he survives for very long in the position he's in. And if he does, that again only serves to paint the picture further that he's a plant basically from Moultrie and the people who are part of the historic secrecy campaign trying their darters to dig in their heels and hope to God this doesn't go any further. And yet, as I said on POC, the genie's out of the bottle. This seems like there's no way this is going backwards now. And we'll see where it plays out from here. Right. I mean, in some ways, it's that kind of uh, public gaffe is just catalyzing the efforts of Congress even further, right? I mean, it's almost doing them a favor, right? I mean, here you're having 
uh, some back-to-back instances where Congress is being told they can't get information. So you have Grush, who's openly volunteering to give them information in a secure setting, and they can't get access to a secure setting. Well, that's going to make them upset. Uh, Then you have Kirkpatrick, who is (laughs) putting out this insane letter and lambasting Congress in the letter as well by saying, uh, Congress is withholding information from Arrow because some of these witnesses are going to Congress and not going to Arrow. I mean, I can't think of a, a worse way to endear yourself to your you know, ultimate boss here, uh, the, the, the American public, than this. And so, you know, if you want to, you know, rise the hackles of congressional representatives and get them even more interested in digging into this topic and unearthing something, well, I mean, geez, we've certainly accomplished that. So. I don't know. There, there's some elements of this story that, uh, and, and I don't want to sound super conspiratorial, but they almost seem, uh, you know, by de- you know, to be architected by design to make this uh, to kind of turn up the temperature here uh, on this investigation. Uh, you know, it appears like a public, uh, you know, gaffe, but I don't know. Maybe it's some in some way it's uh, it's actually benefiting the cause. I don't and I don't think you know Kirkpatrick is in on it. I just think that that that, that is the practical result of this letter. Um, so, you know, it's, it's be interesting. Let's keep an eye on that. Uh, there's a lot of speculation that he may not be in this position for very much longer. Uh, there will be a replacement. Uh, then, of course, who will that be? But before we, you know, I want to get your thoughts on this further, but before we go there, I, I want to make a point here that something that bothers me that I see happening in, in social media amongst our community uh, when, we, when we seemingly don't get what we want. We've got a lot of folks in the community that uh, are extremely vocal about attacking some of these people and demanding resignations and, you know, basically getting out the virtual pitchforks. Look, I get it. I get the frustration, but there are better ways to go about expressing this this, this kind of displeasure. And I don't think it's fair to be uh, kind of lobbying personal attacks at Sean Kirkpatrick um, asking that people harass Sean Kirkpatrick. I mean, this is not the way to get what you want. Uh, you know, we need to stand behind our best arguments, not verbal attacks, verbal assaults, riling up the community uh, to just flood somebody's inbox with your displeasure. Yes, that does get some attention, but in my opinion, there are better ways to to move this forward. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> I agree with that, the spirit of that statement. And I think we should follow the lead of someone like David Grush. He doesn't tend to say negative things about Sean Kirkpatrick directly. What he points to is the evidence. He says, I did make Sean aware of this. I spoke to him before he took over Arrow. And from my understanding, he did not follow up on it. I have not heard back from him since then. These are the kind of things you need to point to. Like, evidence that therefore Congress can begin to put two and two together. And to your point earlier, in terms of this last statement I'll say about Kirkpatrick, he kind of dug a deeper grave. And to that point, there are some people who say at this point, he doesn't even really want to be there and almost is waiting to get appointed somewhere else. And perhaps he's literally is trying to dig his own grave in that sense. Because after his letter was published to LinkedIn of all places, this is what Anna Luna's, Representative Anna Luna's response was to that retort. Quote, we just had a witness, Grush, testify to Congress. He was in fear for his life and his former boss, Kirkpatrick, decides to post a letter attempting to discredit him. Seems odd. 
Kirkpatrick, why did you not follow up on Grush's concerns when he disclosed them to you, unquote? So whatever he was hoping would be the eventuality from writing that letter, I think it backfired on him. And as I said on POC, only seemed to fill in the lines even more on the narrative that Grush was already putting forward. Do you think the DOD is underestimating the degree to which uh, consensus reality will, will hold fast here and that people will just kind of lose interest? It almost seems that way, that the, the tactics of the past uh, kind of stall, delay, change the subject or whatever, you know, they worked really well, but I feel like that they've vastly underestimated its staying power now. It doesn't seem like it's uh, it's all that effective anymore. It's a good point. And as you and I talked about before we went on the air, I made the point about history repeats, repeats itself until it doesn't. And that also works here because not only do some veteran ufologists feel like this nut's never going to crack and that they're going to go to their grave without ever hearing the truth about this from official sources. In the same way, so even when there's actually evidence that things really are shifting, there's tectonic shifting going on, they can't see it. They won't see it because they've almost inoculated themselves from actually seeing the evidence right in front of them because they don't want to be let down once more. They're frustrated idealists. In the same way, I think the DOD, to your point, was so successful with the tactics they used for so, so, so long, we're talking decades and decades and decades, that they likely got a little lazy and assumed that it would always work. Why would you not believe that? This is, this is sort of human nature. When we try something over and over again and it keeps working, we begin to believe our own hype. And what's different now is, number one, we're in a social media world where as I've mentioned on previous episodes, in the past, they could buy out a few journalists around the world and control the public narrative through a fairly small number of major news networks, papers and major network television, whatnot. That's not the case now. They are not going to be able to buy out all the podcasters, for instance, that are part of the new media. And in some ways, new media has just as big an audience than some of the legacy media at this point. So that's maybe one thing that they didn't account for even there. And then on top of that, like you said, some of these Congress people are fairly young and yet seem to not be aware of that history and they don't care about it. They just see what looks to them like corruption, right? Even if you get past the UFO and aliens piece and the revelation that means for the history of our civilization, you have people on both sides, Matt Gates and AOC, recognizing that this is a military industrial complex bankrolled with taxpayer money and, like you said, failing audits to the tune of billions of dollars. And not only that, but willfully, almost brazenly redirecting money to programs that are illegal and then daring to challenge Congress and almost threaten people. So after we've had Grush coming forward and testifying to Congress, I think Susan Goh with the Pentagon released a letter of her own reminding, you could say reminding potential witnesses that they need to keep classified information classified. Again, some people suggested that gets very close to witness intimidation because witness intimidation is not just saying, you know, I will come and blow up your car if you speak. It's saying things like, we're watching, if you do this, you know, you're, you're going to jail, blah, blah, blah. It's just even creating the ethos by which they would be in fear either of going to jail or even of their life or their pension or whatever. So this is where we are. And I think, again, all of us are surprised by how quickly it's moved, 
how the atmosphere is so different than people thought. And to hear some of these fairly rookie Congress people like Luna and Burchett saying, we're going to go to your Air Force base. We're going to hold a press conference and we're going to make your life hell, basically, until you get us the answers that we have every right to have. So this is where we are really remarkable. Yeah, I, I this has gotten my appetite wet for the Senate hearing. I'm very much looking forward to this one uh, when it does take place, and I think it will. Um, when we hear get to hear from folks like Rubio uh, and and others, Angela Brand, uh, you know, just kind of weighing in, and I'm reminded of what Rubio said not long ago about the the multiple credible witnesses that he had heard from that are very serious people. Um, and you know him basically kind of spelling it out loud. Either we have a huge intelligence failure here within our uh, our intelligence community, we've hired some crazy people, or they've got some. You know, these are these are real claims. And so, I mean, he gets it. He understands this. And I think we're gonna, uh, you know, really get to the, the heart of the matter. And and furthermore, on this whistleblower intimidation component, um, I think we are seeing now in a much more public way you know, champions of whistleblowers, you know, so it's one thing to have a Jeremy Corbell who you can, you can, you know, if you're a person on the inside, you want to, you know, talk to Jeremy and, you know, he'll, he'll hype that up and, you know, he'll, it seems like he can keep, keep the confidence pretty well. It's another thing entirely to have Congress people basically being champions of this cause, or you can then go to their offices and say, I'm in one of these programs and I need you to throw your support and weight behind me. Otherwise I feel intimidated and, and unsafe and coming forward. So this is, it all speaks to the climate that we now have and are entering into, which is really what we're going to, I think, finish out the show on. And that's talking about the ways in which this unfolding, this unraveling of disclosure is going to impact our entire civilization. Uh, you know, how, how this is, the, these kinds of revelations are being assimilated into our collective minds. Um, you know, we're really watching that happen in real time. And and how often does that take place? Uh, you know, it's it's rare for a generation to be able to be uh, the witness to this kind of change happening, uh, uh, not just within one generation, but across all the generations that are alive at that given time. And so you're, you're going to be wrestling and watching with, uh, you know, well, watching how the older generations are, are, you know, kind of dealing with this exposure of uh, these secrets. The younger generations, uh, you know, they're already churning out these uh, great TikTok videos and YouTube videos and memes about, uh, you know, here's disclosure. We have aliens. Yeah, what, you know, what's the big deal? Because I've got all these other problems in the world, and you know, I applaud them for for highlighting that because we do have a lot of problems. But you can see that this is it's making its way and it's percolating through our our society. Um, and we're at the very early stages of that. We're at the early stages of people coming to grips with it, even people like us, right? And, and we've talked about this a lot. We, we, I mean, how much time, mental time and effort, energy have you and I put into this subject? Uh, a great deal. And, and we don't have all the answers by, by a long shot. You know, we, we've certainly spent a good bit of time thinking about it and I think furthering things along. But as it becomes more real, we too are waking up and going, wow, this is really the world in which we live in now. And, uh, you know, what is it going to look like tomorrow, a year from now, you know, two years from now? It's, it's hard to even imagine in my mind where we will be uh, given the pace of change that is taking place. 
Yeah, before we get to that pace and what it might be pointing towards, let's talk a little bit about what needs to be metabolized yet into our society. And those of us who've had anomalous experiences have already had to go through that metabolization process. Now the rest of the world is going to have to go through this because even ufologists that like the idea of the tech can comfortably sort of leave the question of the beings to the side. Now that's going to come front and center. So remarkably, almost hilariously, certainly historically, I saw one of our colleagues on social media make a comment directed at Tim Pritchett about reptilians and his response was wink, wink. So we have a congressperson wink, winking around reptilians. Humanoid, lizard-like beings. It almost sounds like an episode of the original Star Trek. So, I mean, this is part of the reality that has to be metabolized. So for the journalists that we pointed to earlier who have a hard time with aliens, period, and spacecraft, to have to deal with these kinds of beings not just reptilians, but mantis beings, seven-foot-tall praying mantis-type beings, Nordics, the greys, short, tall, all these different forms that have been part of UFO lore, as was pointed out already by us and other people, again, what came out from Grush was not brand new revelations, but actually confirmation of the lore that had already existed for the last several decades, which means... What we're going to find is that this lore around these different beings is going to come into the public picture at some point. How are people going to reckon with that? This is just so mind-bending because we sometimes underestimate how much we've had time and energy and have given real psychic power to, intention to, grokking these things, trying to form a worldview where all of this is real. Now you take those people we talked about earlier that have fast-paced lives, that feel like they're just barely keeping their head above water, trying to make their you know mortgage payments or their rent payments, and then they find out that this is part of the reality, that there's been this suppression of energy and this interaction with beings of all these different sorts, and perhaps even them having infiltrated different elements of our military-industrial complex, because that's one part we haven't talked about yet. I know we'll get to that in this last segment here. I said this to you before I went on the air. Ironically, it's almost like when someone's sitting across the room and they hear people having a conversation about them and they say, you realize I can hear what you're saying, right? <laughs> so here we have the beings that everyone's saying exist now, that we have some of the bodies in places like Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and yet no one's talking about what they're doing in real time. How are they responding to these revelations? What will their next move be? It's like we've forgotten that they are not just an historical player, but they are here now. They are also going to have an agenda and a response to what's happening right now. So that just adds to the mix. Again, when you really try to think about how much has to be metabolized into our culture very, very quickly from a place of zero, where we're already at like 90 in terms of how much we've actually metabolized this stuff, you wonder how it's going to work. And again, it begs that question, the fact that things are moving so quickly with such pace, knowing as a politician that you'd rather roll these things out over a very long period of time so you can control the narrative and slowly seed into the public 
these revelations, if it's happening so quickly, that's probably not the preference for politicians, which begs the question, why do they feel the need to do it at this pace anyway? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and it's, it seems apparent to me we're dealing with many different agendas, right? So we have, uh, I was trying to explain this to a friend recently as well, that you know, you not only have competing human agendas, but you have competing other agendas. Uh, and sometimes you even have competing human slash other agendas, where there are some humans that are working with others, uh, you know, in order to influence the the way in which this may or may not unfold. It's an incredibly complex picture, uh, and you know, obviously, we we don't have all the info there. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see how that how that you know, sort of comes about. But I want to you know sort of say to those of you who. Uh, have been trying to wrestle with these concepts and uh, make sense of them and at least create space within your own mind for their for their very real possibility that in many ways in very real ways we have been uh, you know kind of gestating incubating this topic uh, for a while and and we're representative of a part of humanity that is trying to you know in a healthy way, process this information. And and I want to point out the the, the importance of that. Like it, it, not everyone should or can be doing that kind of work. It's the same thing that we would say about certain academics. Uh, you know, I was terrible at chemistry and hated it. But there are people who are amazing at chemistry and absolutely love it. And those are the people who we need to be doing chemistry, right? Uh, and just the same thing with this topic. There are some folks who love it. It's They live it. They breathe it. They want to get into all the different aspects of it and explore all the different uh, um, hypotheticals. I mean, we're in that camp and and I'm glad that we're there. I'm glad we're doing that kind of work because someone needs to do it. Uh, we can't just you know kind of stumble into whatever that this might be. We need to have put some real concerted thought into what this will mean for our human civilization. And, and I argue here too, I really hope that if the government does have some of this tech and in bodies and et cetera, and they've had it for decades that they have also put some real thought into what's going on here and into how best to perhaps uh, un- explain this to the world. Um, I would not want it to be done in a haphazard way is, a, is really the point I want to make there. And and it's nice to see, and you know, many have said, oh, it would just be great if the president would make an, an announcement. But actually, it's I think it's better for us to see this unfold through Congress. I mean, this is the the chamber of the people, right? This is our representation. And it's much better for them, you know, with the partisanship that is happening there every day and that kind of trench warfare, it's better for them to investigate together collectively and, and form new bonds and friendships as they struggle for this information that think about where they will come out. They will come out after this struggle being a lot closer to one another, being a lot, being able to see each other more as peers rather than enemies. And think about how will that, that will translate into the rest of our civilization, at least in the West here. I mean, an incredibly positive change, in my opinion, is, is very possible through that effort, that collective effort. I agree. One thing I was saying to you before I went on the air as well, was how, as we've talked about on a couple episodes on liminal frames and I've covered on several episodes on point of convergence, there's of course also the possibility that many of these beings are not exactly space aliens in the way that they're often portrayed, but perhaps even 
our descendants, some sort of neo-human forms that have mastered time travel. Again, we know that space-time is an integrated fabric, so it's not a stretch to imagine that one day we would master that capability, and based on human nature, we would likely use it. You and I talked about this before, that when you start thinking about some of the activities of some of these groups, and you think about them in terms of human nature, it begins to make more sense, actually. Some people have a hard time making sense of the seemingly contradictory, multi-agenda kind of picture we see here. But when we think about we human beings, even we Americans, how many different factions there are where we subscribe to different views of reality, different views for what role government should play, then it's not a stretch to imagine that if our descendants have at that point spliced in gene pool from other beings on the earth, like mantis beings, like reptiles, things like that, that are already here already, that you would end up with something like that kind of being and that they would have their own agenda for what they want to do here. And it's interesting how the legislation really stuck on this word or this term non-human intelligence. Because I have, for instance, been using the term NHI slash and small chi for non-conventional human intelligence. Because again, this may be some future version of a neo-human. And that even the different forms we find over time in our world is actually different slices of time coming back. And so the further out you get, the less they look like us, the less they behave like us, in some ways, perhaps even the less physical they are. They become, they sort of transcend the physical realm altogether. Whereas the ones that are closer in time to us look more like us and tend to act more like us. And you see even some division in terms of agenda and some competition going on there. Again, I bring everyone's attention to the three-part series I did last year based on some information that was coming out of intelligence circles around there being these different factions of future humans here around some sort of cataclysm. And this has been front and center. One of the questions I have is, when we think about the societal conversation, would it actually be easier for some people to grok this, to, to work with this, if they thought it in, about it in terms of time-traveling humans or neo-humans, as opposed to space aliens? Because even one of the Congress people in that hearing said, I have a hard time imagining them having to come across the vast expanse of space for one thing, and then crash when they get here. But if you think about it instead as time travel vehicles and those initial experiments, I think back to the movie The Fly. Did you ever see that with Jeff Goldblum? Didn't go so right. <laughs> right? The first attempt, he ended up mixing his genes with that of a fly and hence everything goes wrong from there. So in the same way, the notion could be that some of the initial crashes were actually time travel vehicles that it's not about navigating necessarily across space and then coming into the planet's atmosphere. But if you're coming from one time in the Earth's future to our time, the magnetic poles will be in different places. You're going to have to account for different elements. And perhaps in those first couple of attempts, there are things you didn't take into consideration and you ended up crashing. Again, the humanoid form stares us in the face. I had a conversation recently with Mike Masters about when do you have a speciation event where they actually would be considered a different species? His response to me was that he doesn't think the ones we're seeing would be really considered a different species. It would still be us, even though the form looks like it's evolved in some different ways by then. 
So this is interesting because if eventually this does become part of the conversation, then in addition to reckoning with these different beings that are here and their extremely advanced technology and how parts of the military industrial complex have been sitting on these remarkable inventions and technologies that could have transformed our world. But if we find out indeed that it's future versions of us coming back to play with the timeline, trying to change the course of history, imagine that trying to be grokked by the masses. Yeah, it not only might be us in a very real physical sense, uh, sense of the word, but even in a metaphysical sense, right? It is us all along, right? We're all this, uh, we've talked about this many times, we're all part of this greater, uh, you know, kind of collective mind. Um, and, and I agree, in some ways, it is easier for us to relate to the dynamics if we can overlay onto them some of our, our human impulses and understandings. Um, but, you know, quite a complex picture that that would be. Uh, to have all these different factions over different time periods, uh, kind of wrestling for whatever it is, trying basically trying to tinker with it, which is sort of as I talked to you before the show. That's very human, right? We just it's like we can't put something down, we can't let it go. We have to just keep messing with it. And as we keep messing with it, and if we involve time travel in the equation, you can just only imagine how many permutations are then just keep spilling out because we can't leave it alone. Um, and that's basically what we're seeing happen here, at least as a possibility. Um, well, I know as we kind of want to finish this episode, we, we want to come back to something we've talked about uh, before, and I know folks want to, uh, wanted us to dig into this a little bit more. And I think it's rela- surrounded uh, the issue of urgency, the urgency of this issue. Um, why the you know, seeming escalation in, in, uh, in the pace here? Uh, what's really going on? And you know, there are a lot of things happening in our world right now um, that I think you know it's not if unless you've been living under a rock, uh, you know, you should you should be aware of the, these issues. So we've got climate change, as you mentioned earlier in the show, uh, some really alarming, dramatic changes taking place in the Earth's climate right now, uh, with some you know projections indicating that some of our you know, ocean currents and jet streams may, may totally be upended within a couple of years um, and the catastrophic effect that would have in certain parts of the world. And then we, we're talking about our, you know, food supply, food safety, all these different issues. Uh, you know, Phoenix and Arizona, I think, broke, you know, shattered their record for most consecutive days, uh, over 110 degrees. Uh, their overnight low was in the mid-90s. I mean, this is uh, not uh, sustainable, really. And so that's one aspect of this. Uh, we also have the sort of specter of nuclear war that I think all of us have kind of just uh, tucked away into the, the deepest, most furthest back corners of our minds uh, to not have to think about because uh, that is a very real possibility. But it, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's on the table. It could happen. Um, we're seeing the rise of AI and how it's impacting every facet of our, of our lives. Uh, both in good ways and bad. Uh, and most recently, uh, we have uh, heard of this announcement of a potential room temperature se- uh, semiconductor material that was developed uh, in South Korea. Uh, so we're looking at testing that. And, and if it is, in fact, what they think it is, that will be a revolutionary material for uh, our electronics uh, and, and, and our magnetics and all those kinds of different things. That Anything that uses electronics will be impacted by this. Uh, so we have all of these events taking place in this moment in history. 
Uh, and it does very much seem as if we are uh, headed toward, I don't know, kind of a point of convergence, if you will, uh, where these things may come together in uh, a type of explosive interaction. And maybe this is why this is all happening now, uh, you know, because if we can't kind of pull up from this nosedive that we might be in, uh, you know, when there's no there's no point of return. Yeah, and another point we talked about before we went on the air was that it may be the case, as I made this case one time on a POC episode, an episode called the partition hypothesis, the notion that it may be the case that as a larger cosmic community watches a younger civilization begin to mature, we've underestimated how much needs to be grokked as part of that maturity process for the kindergarten class. And it may be that coming to grips with the consequences of messing with space-time itself are one of the lessons that need to be learned. So wouldn't it be interesting if indeed there are extraterrestrial, interdimensional beings? I've said many, many times, I always want to make this point that while I do think future neo-humans are absolutely part of the picture, I have seen evidence, been presented with evidence that I've even not talked about publicly yet that make me really convinced that's the case, that that's part of the picture. Which is not to say, though, that that's mutually exclusive and therefore there, there are not any ETs or interdimensionals. I think there are. It's just that, again, it may be that as they sort of absorb the prime directive in a way and watch us as we mature, part of the lessons we need to mature through is what we do with space-time. So that just becomes really interesting in terms of what's happening now. Now, in terms of like you pointed out, all of the things that are in the mix right now, the threat of nuclear war. Very, very interesting again that, have you seen Oppenheimer, by the way, yet? I have not had a chance to see it, so. Okay, so then I, maybe I won't say this because I don't want to spoil it for you or for anybody else. But it's very interesting that that's come out right in the midst of this. We talked about this in the last episode. We are seeing incredible destabilization in, in Russia, for instance. We already had an attempted coup and that is a nation with the second most nuclear weapons in the world, not a great state of affairs. We are still seeing the dying of an old empire with the Soviet empire and the old school that really doesn't want to let go of that notion, that egotistical kind of immature, insecure kind of vision for what they thought they were a part of. And they might just decide that they don't want to go out without a big bang, so to speak. Who knows what's going to happen there? Part of what experiencers, again, have been envisioning, dreaming about, that kind of thing, is nuclear warfare and, of course, massive shifts in climate. What are the chances that that just happens to be two of the main elements that's in play right now while we also are seeing this urgency, this seeming urgency from our governmental bodies around trying to quickly move forward the disclosure conversation again? seems like it's for a purpose. I want to say to people, it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad news. Because if you think about one thing, and I thought about this today, if they were convinced, the, the government, I mean, that a cataclysm awaited us and there's nothing we could do about it, they would feel no need to push disclosure, you could argue, because it's a foregone conclusion. So why spoil the party? Seemingly, the only reason they would push this is because it creates leverage for something else, which is a really interesting question to think about. And we've got many different narratives that are sort of 
coincide a little bit. We've got notions around 2027 that John Ramirez talked about, some sort of major event happening. That one not being so much a cataclysm, more like a civilization shift. We've got talk around 2025 coming out. Again, the pace of change seems to almost suggest that it's even more imminent than that. And I just want to again bring up what I did the last time. Again, we can't ignore the elephant in the room, which is the others. I again want to remind people that they have played an active role in the past, that at times in the past, there have been elements of these others who didn't want disclosure to happen. And there's evidence, historically, you can find of activities they conducted to actually prevent disclosure to happen when it was about to happen. So the fact that it is seemingly happening now and so quickly, so robustly, suggests that they have shifted perspective. So that's something to bring into the mix. I want people to think about what would have changed in their calculus that now they are pro-disclosure. That's something we have to consider in the mix here. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, there's so much that we have to digest, right? Uh, there's a lot of material here to get our minds around. And I think that you know, as this continues to progress, you know, you're going to see uh, more and more folks who have been in this community, been closely tied to this subject, and and advocates for it, you know, wrestling very publicly with what this means, um, because it's one thing to uh, sort of play around in the speculative playground. It can be a lot of fun, and we're really good at that. I think humans are good at hypothesizing and idea ideating um, about what might happen or what could happen, what things might be. It's another thing altogether when, as Mike Tyson said, when you get punched in the face, right? Uh, so you know, we're really about to get, I think, collectively punched in the face by what this is, and we're going to have to recalibrate uh, and and adjust in light of what it is. Um, and, and also keep in mind, we may not know all of what it is, right? So we're going to have to recalibrate with what we know and incorporate that, integrate that into our own lives and perspectives, and that will take some time. Um, and, and I hope that those of you who've listened to our show, uh, you know, are in a position where you're at least more comfortable thinking through these different aspects, and that if something does get released and, and happens fairly soon, that it's something you will have thought about, entertained, and and be you know some, to some degree capable and comfortable having a conversation about that with those that are in your sphere of influence. Um, I think that will be incredibly important. That is, you know, a lot of the work that you and I think we are involved in is helping folks to uh, come to grips with this and be prepared for uh, what this uh, may mean for us as a people. Um, so, you know, hopefully we will continue this conversation and, and uh, as, as we know more, we will continue our speculations, but maybe with a little bit greater degree of clarity and, uh, of course, having that conversation, not just with each other, but with all of you who are listening along and uh, participating with us, uh, it absolutely enriches the quality of the conversation and, and influences the directions in which we go. Um, before we close, anything else that you want to add about this uh, episode? Just to highlight what you pointed to at the end there, which is that we should remember all of us who've had years to metabolize all these different elements that those around us, even those who frustratingly to us have ignored this topic. Ironically, I heard Bryce Sable today saying that 
even now with all the revelations, he can't get his wife and his daughter to be that interested in this. But at some point, that corner is turned and people everywhere will have to reckon with this. I think that's one thing we can say is coming, that the push to disclosure is so that we do reckon with this as a species. And each of us should remember that. We will go from being frustrated that our friends and colleagues and family were more interested to suddenly them having no choice but to grapple with this. We will be in a unique position to help them with that. And I hope that we take up that cause moving forward. Excellent. Well, may the quality of our questions shaped by desire for understanding enhance our journey of discovery. And may our travels broaden the sphere of our consciousness, reminding us that new discoveries beget new horizons. As always, adventure awaits. We'll see you next time on Liminal Frames.